Part 6. The Twain Shall Meet Wat Ba Nana Chan By 1975, there were almost 20 Western monks at Wat Ba Pong, about a quarter of the resident Sangha. This rapid and significant influx brought with it inevitable tensions. Although the organization of the monastery and a common faith and confidence in Luang Po kept the situation workable, Minor but niggling conflicts between the Thais and the Farangs became increasingly common. The first generation of Western monks was predominantly North American. These were young men used to an informal, unregimented life, to expressing their feelings about things freely, using their initiative. Many of them had robust personalities. In an era when travel to Southeast Asia was a lot more daunting than it is today, the path to a forest in northeast Thailand was not a straightforward or easy one to take. Having to conform to the Vinaya, to many rules and regulations that they could not always see the reason for, could easily provoke the rebellious side of their nature. The Thai monks, almost all brought up in local villages, could be dazzled by the exoticness of the Westerners. They admired them for their renunciation, but were puzzled, amused, and occasionally repelled by their gaucheness and failures to govern emotion. Sometimes, the Thai monks were made uncomfortable by what they saw as the Westerners' over-familiar manner towards Luang Po, or else envied the easy access to him. These tensions did not run particularly deep. Essentially, they were little more than ripples on a placid forest pool. In the monastery as a whole, Attitudes of tolerance and goodwill towards the foreign monks usually far outweighed any negativity. But even so, Luang Po was aware that certain changes needed to be made. His solution was to reduce the number of Western monks at Wat Papong by establishing a branch monastery especially for them. Problems at Wat Papong were not the only reason for his decision. Luang Po saw that in future, many of the Western monks would want to return to the West and establish monasteries there. Before that happened, he wanted them to gain experience in running their own affairs. In particular, he wanted to train Ajahn Sumedho in the role of abbot of a monastery. It would also be good to have a place where the Westerners could practice together, where the teaching would be in English, and where the food could be blander and more suited to a Western palate. Monks could alternate between spending time with him and living at this new monastery. He started to consider the idea aloud. At first, Ajahn Sumedho, the prospective leader of the new community, was not enthusiastic. He had no wish to take on such a responsibility. But as time passed, he began to consider his resistance to be selfish and decided to trust in Luang Po's judgment. That hot season of 1975, Ajahn Sumedho's large cast-iron arms bowl developed a rust patch and needed to be re-fired. Luang Po gave permission to him and four other foreign monks to walk over to the cremation forest of Bungwai village, some nine kilometers to the west of Wat Babhong. There, they would find a plentiful supply of wood and could combine a bowl-firing expedition with a short retreat. 
For many years, a group of villagers from Ban Bungwai had been walking over to Wat Bapong on every observance day for a day and night of Dhamma practice. They were excited at the idea of having monks come to live outside their own village. Soon, a deputation went to see Long Po and asked him to give permission for the Western monks to spend the rains retreat in the Bungwai cremation forest. They would build huts for the monks to live in. It was an opportune moment, and Bungwai was not far away. Long Po agreed. From the first days of the new venture, Long Po would make frequent visits. He offered his assistance in various ways. He used his influence to get a dirt road cut right around the forested area so as to give clearly defined limits to the monastery's land. When the jealous abbot of a local village monastery started to pen anonymous letters to the authorities slandering the western monks, Lung Po, with great tact, chaired a meeting in which the problem was resolved. Ajahn Sumedho, Wat Banana Chat's first abbot, felt grateful for the support as he strived to get to grips with a role he did not find easy. I could always go to see Long Po, and he came here quite often. Also, he knew I'd have to learn from trial and error. I remember one time feeling in such a state of despair, all these feelings of being responsible and of being totally inadequate to deal with them. He helped me to get some perspective on this feeling of being burdened by responsibilities. I remember one time going to see him in a state of despair, and he sensed it immediately, and he said, Now you know what it's like to be an abbot. You thought it meant having a triangular cushion to lean against and the key to the larder, and he laughed. Venerable Varapanyo recounted his memories of his first rains retreat at Wat Banana Chan. On the first night of the rains retreat, Ajahn Sumedho told us what the schedule would be. The emphasis would clearly be on formal meditation practice and encouraged us to do the practice as it was set up, without second thoughts, and that if we did, mindfulness would become habitual and we'd find that we'd be able to live our lives out mindfully. That sounded reasonable to me and quite wonderful. What more could a person ask for, really? But it still seemed a distant goal. There was also more of a harmony of purpose than I'd felt before. No temporary ordinations, kids who were in the monastery only because their parents had sent them, and easy communication with each other without cultural barriers that often could lead to misunderstanding and bad feeling. This is not to say that everything was perfect, of course. We had much to learn about living with each other, and Ajahn Sumedho had many trials and lessons about being a teacher waiting for him. Still, the overall feeling was very good, and there were many factors that hadn't been present in past situations in other places. The retreat went on, the schedule intensified. It wasn't easy, but it was good. Lung Po would make his usual jokes, calling it Wat Ba Wun Wai, Forest Monastery of Confusion, or Wat Ba Amerika Wat. But he obviously thought it was a good thing, and the lay people who came did too. Yet, I doubt anyone could have envisioned how the place would develop in the near future. That first rains retreat, there were only nine or ten kutis and two gratop, grass huts with no floor, 
just a bed on the ground. Ajahn Sumedho lived in a small bamboo kuti with a grass roof, and we had a tiny grass roof dhamma hall with a dirt floor. Lung Po did not intercede in the daily running of Wat Banana Chan. The monks were free to build the monastery as they saw fit. They designed the Dhamma Hall themselves, and its layout with the raised sitting area for the monks running along the side of the hall rather than across the front was a departure from the norm. Lung Po would often recommend visitors who came to pay respects to him at Wat Bapong to go to visit Wat Banana Chat as well. One of the first groups to arrive was Bangkok's Radio 01 Dhamma Group. Every year, a fleet of buses filled with pilgrims from this group would travel up country to visit various monasteries, receive teachings and make offerings. Now, they added Wat Banana Chat to their itinerary and supported it generously for many years. Lung Po showed some concern that the strong-willed Westerners would find it hard to live together in harmony. Whenever he spoke to the Wat Banana Chat Sangha, he emphasized the importance of mutual respect and goodwill. He taught that the protocols governing relationships between monks based on seniority prevented old worldly speech habits from resurfacing and insisted that they not be relaxed. Honorifics were always to be used. A junior monk's name must always be preceded by the prefix tan, a senior monk's by ajan. Lung Po maintained that without creating an atmosphere of trust and respect in their monastery, meditation practices would not bear fruit. The conventions of right speech had a part to play in achieving this goal. Ajahn Amaro was one of the first of the Westerners who came for a visit and ended up becoming a monk. I found a group of Westerners like myself, with very similar backgrounds, who were living in the forest doing Buddhist meditation practice, and they all seemed remarkably cheerful. When they explained their way of life and the basis of their practice, it made perfect sense to me. They explained that by living a life which is disciplined, simple and harmless, one could discover the true freedom that lies within us. Upon hearing their words, my immediate reaction was, how could I have been so stupid not to have seen this before? Three Tiers A three-tiered training was developed for foreign nationals seeking to become monks. After spending some time as lay meditators in Wat Bapong or Wat Banana Chan, those who requested permission to join the Sangha were, if accepted, given the white robes of the lay renunciant or postulant in a short ceremony marked by a formal commitment to the eight precepts. As postulants, they acted as monastery attendants and absorbed the basics of the monastic training through proximity to the monks and by acts of service. After some months in white, their second step was to enter the Sangha as a novice monk, a Samanera. In the year allotted for novice training, they would lead a life very similar to that of the monks, but without the pressure and requirements of the Vinaya rules. Once the year had passed, applicants considered ready by their mentors would be admitted into the Bhikkhu Sangha through the ceremony of Upasampada. For the first five years of their training, junior monks would alternate between living with Luang Po, living at Wat Banana Chat, and living at other branch monasteries. As long as Luang Po's health permitted, Every stage of the process, 
every movement between monasteries was either initiated by him or else given his blessing. In the last years of his debilitating illness, this power devolved to the abbot of Wat Banana Chan. The Western monks appreciated the sense that Lung Po was always aware of what they were doing and had their best interests at heart. Often he would turn up at Wat Banana Chan unannounced, although it must be said that in pre-mobile phone days, this was more of a monastic norm than an exception. Venerable Jyotiko wrote in a letter to his family, Lung Po plays everything by ear, so he might drop by for a visit next week or so. We heard he's pleased about the Dhamma Hall project, and he told the lay people that foreigners need a lot of cakes. The next day, we had a lot. He always plays with our greed like that. He's always throwing curves at us to keep us on our toes. But that's the only way to understand our nature. See the extremes, and if wisdom comes, then you know the middle path. Out on a limb. Most of the Western monks wanted to be close to Luang Po, but accepted that their training would include spells away from him at Wat Banana Chat and other branch monasteries. Life at a branch was usually a mixed experience. Western monks were a novelty in the rural Isan of the mid-1970s. Being the single foreign monk in a monastery brought with it a special, almost celebrity status. Some found this amusing, others distracting. Learning the language, one of the main goals of training at a branch monastery, was not an easy task, as there were, in fact, two languages to navigate. Casual conversation would usually be conducted in Isan dialect, as thick as yogurt, one monk complained, with central Thai used on more formal occasions. Not understanding much of what was going on around them could be stressful in a culture where few things were planned far in advance and everyone was expected to be on their toes and ready to adapt to whatever came up. The presence of teenage novices with all their adolescent energy could also be challenging. The Sangha at many branch monasteries included a number of sons of local supporters sent by their parents for the abbot to straighten out. The need to keep these lads busy meant that work projects were a common feature of life at a branch monastery. A young Swedish monk, Venerable Nuttiko, gave a sense of the atmosphere in a letter. All this work is exhausting some days. One evening, sitting after a long day's work, I was overwhelmed by sleepiness and just fell asleep bent forward with my head on my chest. I didn't even wake up at the bell. It was a hilarious situation, me slowly coming to life while they waited to start chanting. The monks knew how sensitive I've become here to being laughed at, but a novice or two couldn't restrain themselves, and soon most of the sangha was roaring with laughter, including the ajahn. It was so bad, it was good. Life at a small branch monastery could also be very enjoyable. The Thai emphasis on social harmony and the conventions of non-confrontation that underpin it could make for a refreshing change from Wat Banana Chat, where not all of the more individualist Westerners ranked emollient social skills amongst their spiritual goals. Many made good friends at branch monasteries and maintained contact with them over the following years. Others developed a much richer idea of the monk's life, the running of a monastery, 
and the relationship between Awat and local communities. One monk was clearly reveling in life at a branch monastery when he wrote, Part of what I love about being a monk in Thailand is this simplicity, walking barefoot through the village each morning, the balmy weather which makes me feel safe and comfortable, and the simple physical chores. It's much easier to be comfortable in my body and be content within the simplicity of the monastic form. These characteristics of contentment and simplicity seem like basic matters, but I often come to think that they're really what life's all about. But even with the occasional epiphany, most of the Westerners were in agreement that, all in all, life at a branch monastery was a humbling experience. In the words of Venerable Natiko, I know it's good for me. It hurts in all the right places. Although some of the Western monks found that their meditation practice progressed while at a branch monastery, this was by no means always the case. Long Po was aware of this, but it did not seem to overly concern him. The long-term effects of the training that he was trying to provide were not always measurable by short-term progress in meditation. The penetration of the Four Noble Truths was always the overarching goal, and a gradual and comprehensive training in all areas of the monk's life was the path. You have to stop to keep up. Formal entry into the monastic order is effected through the ceremony of Upasampada. This ceremony is presided over by a senior monk designated the Upajaya or preceptor, who is empowered to receive the new monk into the Sangha and is required to take responsibility for his welfare and training. The relationship between the preceptor and his disciple is modelled on that of father and son. Lung Po became a preceptor in 1975, and over the next six years, 14 non-Thais entered the Sangha with him as their preceptor. Of these, seven remain in robes as of 2017. Ajans Munindo, Bodhipalo, Amaro, Nyanadamo, Jayasaro, Vajiro, and Kamanando. At the conclusion of an ordination ceremony for Western monks, Lung Po would usually take the opportunity of this gathering of the Western Sangha to give a Dhamma talk which would encompass the whole monastic training, from its most basic foundations to the ultimate goal of the holy life. On one occasion, he began, as was his custom, by emphasizing the importance of living together in harmony, of how important it was that the foreign monks related to each other according to the conventions laid down in the Vinaya. He instructed them that as a group of summoners, they should put behind them all consciousness of different skin color, language and culture, and look on each other with kindness and respect, as companions in the holy life. They should train themselves in speaking to each other mindfully. If any problem comes up in the group, then speak about it in a skillful way. I see it like this. I feel like this and then listen to what the other person has to say. The Western monks should learn to listen with an open mind, both to the words of others and to their own thoughts. When a view or opinion arose in their mind, they should be aware of it as simply that, a view, an opinion, and remind themselves that as yet 
they did not, in fact, know whether it accurately reflected the truth of things. The mind was the measure of the effectiveness of their practice. If they were experiencing mental suffering, that meant that they had deviated from the Dhamma and allowed craving to arise. In community life, devotion to the Dhamma and Vinaya would dissolve all sense of conflict and bring a feeling of unity and diversity. Luang Po seemed to share the widespread concern in Thailand at the time that Buddhism was undergoing a sharp decline. He lamented the fact that so many people were going to monasteries merely in search of protective amulets or to be sprinkled with holy water. He opined that the true Dhamma is disappearing. It's seldom seen. Few people are practicing. The Westerners seemed like a breath of fresh air. The sacrifices they had made to spend their lives as monks in the forest gave new inspiration to many people. So, with the world in its present state, I feel that for all of you to have come here from so many different countries, to join in the training here is a singular thing. It's uplifting for the lay people to see you coming from abroad to become monks and to see that you can eat sticky rice, you can speak Thai, you can speak Lao, and that you're able to endure life in such a poor and backward place. That's why, when I went to London, I said to people there that people come to Wat Bapong for a doctorate in Buddhism. What I mean by that is that you come here intent on genuine transformation. To me, it's as if all of you have died and then been reborn. Everything here is different from your former life. You have to get used to the weather, the food, all kinds of things. In order to become monks, you have strived to overcome all the obstacles, including learning the language and chanting for the ordination ceremony. Your efforts are inspiring. Nevertheless, he cautioned them, the ordination ceremony was simply a convention. It didn't in itself change them for the better, and it should be remembered that ultimately all such forms were empty. Once you've taken the robe, as a monk or novice, you're still the same person as you were before. Postulant, novice, monk, it's all the same person. So don't have ideas about becoming anything. The things we are practicing with are at every stage the same old things. Truly speaking, there are no Thais and no Westerners here at all. There are just the intrinsic elements of earth, water, fire and air. Nothing has any intrinsic existence. There are merely the conventions that we have created. The most important thing was the training of the mind. Don't follow after your thoughts. Try to keep looking at your mind. Through my own reflections, I've come to see that things which run in a circle are the fastest of all. You can't keep up with them. You have to just sit there calmly and watch them run. Don't run with them. When they come to entice you, don't get up from your seat. And then, when your mind stops, you will become aware of many different things. If you run after your thoughts, you won't be able to keep up with them. But if you stop, then you will. It's strange. This applies to all mind objects, 
which are just the way they are, in accordance with causes and conditions. Transcending the world required an understanding of what the world truly was and what it meant to be born into the world. Wherever there is a cause, there will be a result. It's the way of the world. There are causes and results. There is birth and there is death. There is pleasure and there is pain. There is love and there is hate. The existence of all these things is called the world. Identification with any of these phenomena was the profound meaning of birth. Birth formed the cause for a proliferation of conditions, and then, inevitably, death. Birth and death were inseparable, he said. Every single person who dies has experienced birth. To determine the middle way of practice, it was necessary to bear the end in mind. The highest teaching of the Buddha is to put things down. Take hold of them and then put them down. Pick them up to see what they are, and when you know, then lay them down again. In the end, that's the way it has to be with everything. You have to put it all down. When you truly know all the things in your mind, then you put them down as a matter of course. If you don't, and it's, this is mine, that's mine, then you've got it wrong. If you really understand something, then you put it down. The teachings of the Buddha meant an end, an end without remainder. Whatever there is must be brought to a conclusion, to a complete end. The term Ginasavo means one who has come to an end of outflows. Know the good as good and then put it down. Know evil as evil and then put it down. Eventually, the teachings lead to an ending. Knowing the cause, you lay down the cause. Knowing the effect, you lay down the effect. So, having done that, then where do you dwell? Beyond cause and effect, beyond birth and death, you abide there, where things are concluded, where they have come to an end. There is nothing there, the mind is at peace, in the absence of cause and effect birth and death, pleasure and pain. In that peace, there is no cause and effect, because the mind has gone beyond them. It's our ultimate aim in practice. The Buddha taught just this. What remains is for us to travel to that point. The Buddha has provided a boat and oars and left them for us to make use of. If we start to row, the boat will move. If we don't, then the boat will remain motionless. The Buddha is the one who tells us what's what. He cannot do the practice for us. That is our responsibility. <laughs>